You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Turn in your Bibles with me to James chapter 4. We're looking at verses 11 and 12, just a couple of verses this morning. Um, if you don't have a Bible on you, there's one in the pew there near you, or there ought to be. And I just encourage you to grab that and uh, open it up. I have, uh, I have nothing for you. Uh, I don't come with any great wisdom. Um, I come with this book. And my goal is just to say uh, what the Lord has already said and to just help um, bring it down and, and understand it and apply it to our lives together. So, um, yeah, I want you to have that open in front of you. And as always, if you don't have a Bible of your own or one that you can easily read, take this one. It's our gift to you. Uh, we've got 30 more showing up a couple days from now. So um, we're thrilled to uh, continue to restock those uh, as, they, as they go home with people. That's a good thing. Well, I wonder um, how many of you have heard of the animal the slow loris. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Nobody? Oh, you guys are missing out. You need to go home and Google that. Um, not now. Put your phone away unless it's your Bible. Uh, the slow loris is this just neat little animal, uh, kind of like a small monkey uh, or, or maybe like kind of half monkey, half sloth. Um, cute and furry, these big, curious, kind eyes, um, just this fuzzy little thing. Um, as the name suggests, it moves slowly and deliberately through the trees as it looks for insects and fruit throughout southern Asia. Um, definitely the kind of creature that any kid would love to take home and have as a pet. In fact, it's uh, a big part of the uh, illegal pet trade in that area. Um, the problem is this cute, cuddly little guy, turns out, uh, is uh, one of the only known venomous primates. And a little nip from this cute ball of fur uh, send a full-grown man into anaphylactic shock um, and uh, can even kill you. So that makes it uniquely dangerous, right? People know to keep their distance from sharks, from crocodile or lion. Like, we see that, and it's obvious. And we go, yeah, not, I'm not going there. Um, I'm not going to try to catch one of those. Um, but if you saw a slow loris in the wild, you'd think, hey, um, uh, you'd be much more likely to, to try to catch it than to run from it. And again, that makes it dangerous. That makes it this subtle, deceptive kind of dangerous. Um, and, and I think sin is kind of the same way, isn't it? There are some sins that we see clearly, we guard against, we know if we start to see that in our lives, if we're moving in that direction, we go, wow, back off, this is, this is dangerous, don't go there, we keep our distance. Um, other sins just don't have that same kind of red flag factor, they don't scare us the same way, and, and, and so we're tempted to get comfy with them, we're tempted to bring them home and, and let them um, kind of snuggle in. We don't take them overly seriously. And so they become part of how we operate. And yet the reality is, um, all sin is serious. Lurking behind these kind of less notable sins, these less uh, treacherous looking sins, is still a deadly poison 
And we may not see them as immediately that dangerous, but they are deceivingly deadly. One of those sins is what James is addressing here uh, in these verses. And and I think um, we we need to kind of take a closer look and and be a little more honest here. Um, He's talking about how we speak to and about one another. How we either maliciously or sometimes just carelessly use our tongues. Let me read these verses for us. James 4, starting verse 11. Do not speak evil against another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you this morning as those guilty of sin, looking to your cross, looking to your grace. God, would you open our eyes this morning to see um, the reality of sin? to see the danger, the treacherousness of sin. Lord, would you soften our hearts that we might be willing to see um, the sin in us, that we would come in confession and repentance. God, that you would do uh, your transforming work in us this morning. Lord, would you uh, do as you have promised, send out your word to accomplish um, what it sets out to do, that it would not return void, that it would cut to the heart this morning. Lord, would you um, take my words that I have prepared. God, if there's anything that is not true to your word, Lord, would would those words just not be heard? But God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts, that you would apply your truth to our lives this morning. God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, back in chapter 3, James talked about uh, the power of the tongue. How the tongue, though it is so, so small, so unassuming, um, directs the whole course of life, right? It's, it's powerful, like the, uh, like the bit in a horse's mouth, like the rudder on a ship. And then he moves on to how um, the words that we speak are like, like water from a fountain or like the fruit on a tree. They, they show what's inside, right? If you get sweet or bitter water out of a fountain, it tells you what kind of fountain that is. If you get you know, olives or thorns off of a bush, that tells you what kind of plant it is. And James went on to write about how godly wisdom makes peace. Remember that? Whereas our, our love for the world, our desire for these physical things causes these quarrels and fights among us. And that brought us to last week, this, this call uh, for humility before God, for faith and repentance. Verse 11 then, he turns back to the tongue. And he shows how this, this cutting tongue that, that speaks evil against others is in fact so much more than just words. It is, as he said back in chapter 3, it is a deadly poison. Now, before we get to that deadly poison, before we get to kind of the heart behind that kind of speech, we need to understand exactly what kind of speech James is talking about. What exactly is he looking at here? 
He opens with this command, uh, do not speak evil against one another. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges a brother speaks evil against the law, judges the law. Um, So what is this evil talk? What is it exactly that he's addressing? And and I think... um, we run into a particular kind of roadblock today, a confusion today that, that James wouldn't necessarily have run into in his day. Um, when we read this verse in our culture and, and even in our kind of contemporary Christian culture, um, what we take from this verse is don't judge me, right? That's it. That's the, that's the greatest sin in our culture. Don't judge me. Who are you to judge? And this verse kind of plays into that. You can't judge me. Only God can judge. Who are you to judge? But what, what do we mean by that when we say that? And what, what is it that, that James and Jesus mean as they talk about it? I see, when our context says that, what we typically mean is you can't talk about my sin. That's for me. That's between me and God. That's my problem. It has nothing to do with you. You stay out of it. Keep your nose out of my business. Don't judge me. That's not how biblical Christianity works. That misses the whole thing. Matthew 7, 1, a favorite verse on this topic, right? Judge not lest ye be judged. There are people in our world, that's the only Bible verse they know. Maybe John 3, 16 and this one. Seems pretty straightforward. Don't judge, lest you be judged, right? Well, keep reading. Typically, when you have a hard passage of Scripture you can't quite understand, that's the answer. Um, Read a little before and a little after, and you go, oh, that's maybe not what I thought it was saying. Jesus' point here, um, don't judge, lest you be judged. And then he goes on to say what? He, He condemns hypocrisy. Right? Don't, don't try to pick the speck out of your brother's eye when you have this plank in your own eye. But what's his solution? What, what instructions does he give then? He says, so go and remove the plank from your own eye. Deal with your own sin. Why? So that you can then take the speck out of your brother's eye. So that you can judge your brother. Oh, didn't see that coming. That passage that is so often quoted, uh, judge not, actually says, no, this is how you judge rightly. Do it. Matthew 18, um, another uh, beautiful passage from from Jesus, um, gives detailed instructions on how to do that. What does that look like? How do we challenge one another on sin? He, He assumes that we will. He actually even commands it. If someone sins against you, Jesus says, um, don't just leave it alone. You, you, you don't step back and say, oh, who am I to judge? That I'll just leave that. I don't want to touch that. That's messy. I'm not going to go there. No, Jesus says you go to that person. You take it up with them. Lovingly, gently, with your Bible open. Say, here's what I'm talking about. And the goal is, is helping them toward holiness and, and unity and reconciliation within the church. And if that doesn't work, if they won't see it, they won't admit it, they won't accept that rebuke, um, then you're to take another person. You you escalate it. You deal with it as small as possible, just you and them. That doesn't work. You take another brother or sister with you to say, yeah, I see this, and he's right. Right? He's not making this up. This is sin, and and we see this in your life. 
If they still refuse to admit their sin to come to repentance, um, then Jesus says you take it to the church. You, you come to us as elders and, and say, look, this, this brother or sister is, is caught in, in sin. They won't repent. Um, he won't let it go. He's holding on to it, continuing on down that road. And as elders, we're going to meet with them. We're going to we're going to warn them about the danger of their sin and the damage that it causes to the, to the church and to their own selves and how it separates them from the Lord. And if they still don't repent, this is where Jesus gets downright controversial. He says, let them be like a Gentile or a tax collector. Put them out of the church. No longer treat them as a, a brother or sister, as part of the family of Christ. You treat them um, like an outsider like a sinner who needs to be called to repentance because that's the way they're living. Paul um, talks about this, 1 Corinthians 5. The, the, there was this adulterous relationship in the church and, and rather than being sorrowful and, and repenting of that, they were bragging about it. And Paul says, don't associate with them. right? Don't have close, meaningful fellowship with them as they carry on in that. And, and he commands that we are to judge those inside the church. He commands, um, purge the evil person among you. It is not okay for a church family to continue on as if everything is okay when someone in their midst is continuing in, in flagrant, unrepentant sin. This is a pretty carefully defined process um, that we call church discipline. We're commanded to follow this. Now, you're right. That's been abused. That has been done in ways that are ugly and, and, and that are not right. It's been used as a club. And yet, the reality is lovingly saying to someone, hey, this is sin. You can't, you can't continue on in this sin. You, you, can't, you can't carry on renouncing Christ by your lifestyle and still call yourself a part of the body of Christ. You, you have to pick one. And, and the overtone there is, so please, please, please pick the church. Choose Christ. Leave your sin behind. In that way, the church is to be constantly, actively judging one of That should happen frequently with your closest friends saying, hey, Buddy, what's going on here? Um, man, I, I heard you talk to your wife there as I was leaving. That, that's not okay. You can't speak to her that way, brother. Um, we're to be constantly, helpfully correcting one another that way out of love. And, and that's why James says, um, he, he makes this statement here. He, he, he says, you know, 4, 11, and 12, don't, don't speak evil and don't judge. And, and yet, at the end of the book, Right, James, James 5, let me just flip ahead there. Um, verses 19 and 20, here's how he ends the book. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, what happened? Somebody walked into sin and another brother came alongside him and said, hey, wait, that's the wrong way. Don't go that way. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. And so judging, if we can define that word carefully and, and understand it as this gently, godly, biblical way, challenging people on their sin, calling them to turn from evil with the goal of restoring them to the fellowship, it's actually what we're commanded to do, and it's one of the most loving things that you can do. So all that, just so that we don't get this verse misunderstood, 
Um, we don't run down the wrong track with this. And let me just sound this warning. If you find yourself in that place, if you hear those words, don't judge me uh, coming out of your mouth or some semblance thereof, man, that, that ought to terrify you. You ought to hear those words leave and just stop in your tracks and go, oh no, that's a problem. This is showing a, a, a real issue in my heart. I'm, you should be terrified. You should stop and take a long, humble look at your own life. This sentiment today, this whole don't judge me thing is, is unbiblical, ungodly nonsense, often wielded as nothing more than a cover-up for sin, and it's destructive in the church. We can't go down that path. And so that's not what James is talking about here. So what is he talking about? What is this evil speech and this, and this judging that we're not supposed to do? Well, that, that first command, don't, don't speak evil against a brother, that sets the tone. That, that gives us kind of the, the parameters of what we're talking about. Some translations use the word slander. Some use criticize, don't criticize one another. Um, the Greek is, is a little more vague than that, a little more general. It's a compound word, and it, and it simply means to speak against, to speak in a way that is opposed to someone, that is, um, that is against them. Now, that doesn't mean just disagreeing. It means I'm trying to hurt them. I'm trying to bring them down. I'm trying to damage someone by my speech. We make our, we make our, our words as weapons for someone's harm. That's what we're talking about. Jesus James, Paul, they call us to have these hard conversations, right? Conversations that, that people are not going to enjoy. They will not be fun. Um, they might want you to stop. They might say, you're hurting me. But those are to be done in a loving and gentle way. And most importantly, um, sincerely seeking the good of that individual. Helping them back toward holiness, toward Christ-likeness. The kind of judging that's forbidden here and elsewhere is the kind that's used as this weapon against another person, right? It's this malicious, maybe we can make a distinction between judging, which just means seeing the truth, right? Judging, choosing between good and evil uh, and judgmentalism, where I'm just wielding the law as a weapon, pushing you down, um, not trying to lift you up. And, and so all speech that is, that is damaging toward others, that is aimed at someone, uh, is forbidden. And, and that's a broad category. There's a lot in there. The category, I think, often includes things that we can easily overlook, ones that we are in danger of snuggling up to rather than cutting the head off of. Certainly slander, malicious talk, angry outbursts, verbal attacks, but also gossip, complaining and murmuring, lying in all its forms, speaking in a tone that is, that is sharp and condemning. And, and let's just push this specific. For those of you who are married, that sin will show up first in your heart toward your spouse, right? Or toward your children, those places that we're most comfortable. And we think, oh, I'm okay in public. Yeah, so... It's, it's just a secret sin that's better. Now, how do you speak to one another? How do you treat your children? Man, that, that hurt. I got to stop and think about that. Here's another one I think stings us. We get to talking in a group of people. 
people, we, we think all agree with us on some topic. Maybe it's uh, politics or theology or something like that, and, and it's really easy to just let that carry on, and, and all of a sudden we're mocking those who think differently for us, from us, how ridiculous that they don't see things our way, how stupid can they be to think that, that that's true, and we start to cut them down. We start to make fun of those people. Let me just take a moment and let you in on a little secret. This church is more diverse than you think it is, okay? I, I get the inside scoop. I get to have these conversations with people. This church is more diverse than you think it is. And that's a good thing. That's a beautiful thing. Um, we're pretty clear about where we stand as a church on certain issues. And uh, I think often, maybe more than a lot of churches are, um, and we're pretty careful then also um, to define what are those primary issues and what are secondary issues, right? What are the, what are the things that, that we need to be on total agreement about? 100%, this matters. We need to be part of the church. We need, to, we need to agree on the deity of Christ, right? If we throw that out, we don't have any unity, right? We can't carry on together at all. Um, but then there are secondary issues. What about the end times? What about the miraculous gifts? Um, what about the, the kinds of songs we sing? Well, we can have room there for conversation. And so you'll see on our website, you'll see it on the, on the membership process, there's two categories. There's a statement called our doctrine. This is what we believe. These things are essential. We've got to be able to agree 100% on these. And then you're going to see another document called our convictions. And on those we say, hey, this is where our church stands. And you may not agree. That's okay. Um, what we ask is, if you're going to become a member of the church, uh, is to just agree to live at peace with that. That you're joining our church, and you know that's what our church teaches, and so you're not surprised, and you're not going to be you know, making that into a big issue and making a fight over it. Um, and so we ask you to live at peace with these things, but then we, um, as the church, need to hold up our end of that bargain, right? Are we willing to live at peace with them? And so we need to keep that in mind. Um, the next time you're in a, in a group and you're kind of tempted to lob this bomb on some idea, some other, you know, secondary theological position um, to make other believers or maybe other churches into the butt of your joke, there may well be members of our church who hold that position that you're mocking, who are seeking unity and fellowship here, and, and actually they may even be in that circle that you're standing in. I've seen it happen. It's painful. It ought not to be. Ephesians 4, 29 um, kind of looks at this from two sides. Uh, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only what is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So that word, that corrupting talk, that, that means to weaken. No words that decay, that that hurt that make unhealthy or unstable. Our, our words should never do that. They should only build up. They should strengthen and encourage. They should make people stronger and a healthier Christians. Again, that doesn't mean I don't disagree with people. And, and, and we're going to have the, the conversation of, oh, actually, I, I believe this and here's why. And let me help build you up. Let's have this conversation in a way that strengthens you. Not mocking. Mocking's not going to do that. And so that's our goal. Uh, but as we saw in James chapter 3, um, all of us are guilty of the sins of the tongue. 
Verse 2 says we all stumble in many ways. If anyone doesn't stumble in what he says, he's the perfect man. So there it is. Anyone want to say, I'm the perfect man um, or woman? No. Um, we stumble. We sin. We're guilty of these sins. The temptation then, if we all do it in one way or another, is to assume, well, then it, then it must be okay, right? And we all do it. Everyone breaks this law a little bit, um, so that must make it a lesser sin, a more acceptable sin. Uh, it's common to all of us, so it's just not a big deal. And James says, oh no, oh no, let's peel back the layers here a little bit. Don't speak evil against one another. Don't talk in these destructive ways. And then he goes on to kind of draw out what's beneath that. What's really happening? What's this showing, this, this fruit of evil speech? What is this displaying as being in your heart? We looked at what this evil talk is, how we need to, and now, now we need to ask, um, what's behind that evil talk? What's underneath that? And first he says, um, when you talk that way, when you speak with, with evil talk, this, this hurtful talk, you put yourself above your brother, right? You see the repetition here? Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against his brother or judges his brother, what's he doing? He's trying to make a point. That's all of us. Yes, that's a kind of a cultural thing. When he says brothers, he means brothers and sisters. Um, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We have one heavenly father. There is one older brother, that's Jesus, and, and the rest of us are on even playing field. We're brothers and sisters. And, and when we speak this way, when we attack a brother, we're, we're elevating ourselves over that, right? We use our words to push others down in order to lift ourselves up. Back to Matthew 18, Jesus says this in verse 1, uh, to four, he says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, Jesus put the child in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So, so Jesus Starts off here saying, the only true way to come to me is in humility and gentleness and faith like a little child. In humility. And then Jesus says this in verses 5 and 6. He goes on to say, so whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So he's not talking about literal children here. He's talking about these childlike, these other believers. So whoever receives another believer receives me. And then he goes on to say, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Wow. Like Jesus comes off the rails. That's harsh. Like this is, this is like mob stuff. So we come to Christ like children, humbly trusting him, and whoever 
causes one of these little ones, these, these humble believers, to sin. And, and I don't think the word sin is quite right there. It's not the typical word um, that's used for sin. Um, and other translations will use different words there. Um, it, it could be translated to stumble or to falter. And notice, uh, it's kind of set up as the opposite of verse 5, right? If you receive one of these little ones, if you, what, what does receive imply? You bring them in. You care for them. You, you welcome them. There's unity there. But if you do not receive them, you don't care for them, you, you cause them to stumble, you've, you've attacked them, you've hurt them. So Jesus responds to that. If you're going to treat another brother that way, if you're going to hurt them, corrupt them, do damage to them, it would be better for you to have a millstone thrown around your neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. That's what Jesus thinks about those who attack a fellow brother. You're, you're tearing down one whom you should be standing beside, one who you should be drawing in and helping and caring for. Even the term brother itself, right? I mean, it has that, that meaning, Adelphoi. It's a, it's a term of, of love. It speaks of that family bond where we're brothers together. We're, you know, you think of the, the band of brothers going to war together. We're standing side by side. I've got your back. You've got mine. We're, we're on the same mission together. And when the tongue is used for friendly fire, to shoot your brother, to maim him, to wound him, we're acting completely contrary to what it means to be a brother. We destroy that bond of brotherhood, exalting ourselves and, and pushing others down. So Romans 12, 16 says, live in harmony with one another. The unity of the church is so important. That harmony together, how do we do that? Don't be haughty. Don't, don't be prideful. Don't be arrogant. Don't, don't think of yourself as higher, but associate with the lowly. Associate seems like such a weak word in English, but, but have fellowship, have unity with them. The small, those who are weak in their faith. Maybe, they, maybe they're wrong on a bunch of stuff and they really do need to learn and grow. Don't be arrogant and take shots at them. Have fellowship, invite them in, draw them in, care for them, help build them up. Never being wise in your own sight. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they're the ones who were right, and I need to learn from them. Speaking evil against one another shows that, that you've put yourself above a brother. You've assumed that you know better, and you're pushing him down. You're willing to sacrifice someone else for whom Christ died in order to elevate yourself. It doesn't end there. Speaking evil against another shows that you've put yourself above your brother, but then also that you've put yourself above the law. Look again at verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil, or the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. So what's the logic here? How does that work? What does that mean? This person who, who attacks his brother, who's, who's using the law in a, in a judgmental way, not, not trying to build his brother up in, in holiness, but, but to condemn him and to beat him down, that person is not just speaking against and attacking other people. He's actually speaking against attacking, judging the law itself. In, in what way? Well, what does the law command? 
It's interesting here. James begins with this kind of repetition of brother, 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 but where does he end? The last verse in verse, last words in verse 12, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Why the switch? Why not brother? Like brother would make more sense. That's what he's been talking about, who he's been talking to. Why neighbor? Well, I think it seems very likely he's trying to remind us back to chapter 2, verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law, so he's talking about the, the law according to Scripture and obeying the law. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, what's that law? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Hey, remember that whole thing about the law being fulfilled in loving one another? That's what the law commands. That's the bottom line. He calls it the, the royal law. This is the, the chief law above all ever, other laws. Um, he's drawn from Jesus, right? Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like you shall what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, on these two commands, that love God and love your neighbor, all the law and the prophets depend. It, it all comes down to that. You can take every other law throughout the Old Testament and summarize it in really one word, love. Love God, love others. That's the summary of the law. What has this guy done? Right As he judges his brother, that's not love. And so he's put himself above the law. He's decided that he's the one who has the position to, to disobey the law in order to make sure that person fulfills the law as he sees it. He's ignored the very heart of the law, which commands him to love his brother, deciding again, instead to use the law as a weapon against his brother. You can't honor God's law at the same time is you use it judgmentally to crush someone. That, that doesn't uphold the law. And though from the outside, you, you might look like the righteous one, right? And, and you might be able to justify that and go home feeling pretty good about it. I told him, I let him have it, that sinner. But at the heart of it, you're the one who has completely disregarded the law. They may have actually rightfully broken some part of the law of Christ. They might be living in sin, and yet you've thrown the whole law out together when you came in attacking your brother. So James echoes his own words from 122. He says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Here he says, you're, you're not a, a doer of the law, you're a judger only, Right? You're too busy swinging the law like a club rather than submitting yourself to the law and, and, and living out this command to, to love one another. So concerned that everyone knows that his, his brother is breaking the details of the law that he hasn't stopped to consider that he's trampled the law completely. So we speak evil against others. Um, we put ourselves above our brothers and we put ourselves above the law. Now, James takes this one step further, and this is where it gets truly terrifying. What have you done in, in putting yourself above your brother and putting yourself above the law? You've actually put yourself above God. That's what verse 12 is about. He says, there is only one lawgiver and one judge, he who is able to save and destroy 
but who are you to judge your neighbor? Right? Literally, the, the Greek there, it reads, one is lawgiver and judge. There is one. There is one who gives the law, and it's the same one who judges the lawbreakers. And he's the one who is able to destroy. He's the one who's able to save. Not you. You're not the lawgiver. You're not the judge. There are no vacancies in the Trinity. God did not invite you to come and sit beside him on his judgment seat. Who do you think you are? In putting yourself as judge over your brother, trying to accuse him, trying to destroy him, you've taken the job that is only rightfully God's. That's a scary thought. We are never more like Satan himself than when we judge and when we slander others. We use the law in judgmentalism over other people. The very name, Satan, um, comes directly out of the Hebrew. So congratulations, you speak a little bit of Hebrew. Um, Satan, it, it just means accuser or slanderer. Or adversary. You see that, that sense of being against someone, and there's even a verbal aspect to it. He's accusing, he's speaking against. It's directly connected to this, this idea of speaking evil and, and, it, and bringing judgment. Actually, the New Testament word devil is, is really just the Greek parallel to that diabolos. It, it, it's essentially the same thing it's the, ad, uh, the, the accuser, the adversary. That's who Satan is. That's his whole shtick. That's what he does. He speaks against and accuses people before the Lord. And what's at the heart of his fall? Many scholars um, would read Isaiah 14, 12 to 15 is speaking about the fall of Satan from heaven. Um, listen to how Satan's sin is described. It says, how you have fallen from heaven, O day star, O son of the dawn. That's where we get the word Lucifer, by the way. It's Latin for day star. Um, how you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you were cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you were brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Five times, I will, I will, I will, I will. He's, he's usurping a place that only God can hold. I will sit on the judgment seat. I will sit on the throne. I will say who is destroyed and who is saved, who is guilty and who is not. Satan sought to take God's place and God cast him out. And Satan continues to do this today. This is his job. He's the accuser. He's the one who holds our sin before the Lord and says, see, this one deserves damnation. But there is one rightful lawgiver. There is one rightful judge, and it's God. It's not Satan, and it's certainly not you. But that's exactly what we do. When we speak evil against others, when we judge our brothers in that, in that condemning way, that's what we do. 
there's one who made the law and he's the one who judges and he's the one who condemns and saves. Not your job. Stop treating your brothers as less than you. Stop condemning them and speaking evil of them. That's, that's not your place. Now again, that's a very different thing from lovingly calling out a brother and saying, this is sin and you need to grow, you need to walk in holiness. Romans 12, 18 and 19. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You are not judge, jury, or executioner. God will judge. Leave it to him. Romans 14.4 Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. For us to speak against others, particularly those in the church, is to take this position as their master, as their judge, that position belongs to the Lord and, and the Lord alone. And, and who are we to speak condemningly against those whom Christ has forgiven and is sanctifying? This is the truth behind our sins of speech. That's the poison inside of this. And we are far, far too comfortable with many of these sins. We put ourselves above our brothers, we put ourselves above the law. We even put ourselves in the very place of God. So you can see why James moves from, from verse 10 to verse 11, right? You see the, the flow here? Verse 10 was the climax, this, this call to repentance. So submit yourselves to God. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hearts and your hands, you sinners. Mourn and grieve over your sin. And then verse 10 is kind of the, the culmination of all of that. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. And it's easy to say, oh yeah, I'm humble. I've humbled myself before the Lord. I, I, I'm the most humble person I know. And James says, okay, here's a test. Do you speak evil against your fellow brother? Do you stand in judgment over them? James pulls out a very common sin, a sin that we easily overlook, that we, that we brush off, that we justify. We say, that's not really a big deal. And he says, no, if that's you, that's bad news. You might think that you're humble before the Lord, but, but your words, the way you speak to your brother, tell a different story. It's another test of authentic faith. That's what the book of James is all about, these tests of true living faith. Now, as in the case with these different tests, it's not necessarily pass-fail, right? It's not a black and white. It's not as if, um, if you've ever done this, you're, you're not saved. You're outside the kingdom. There's no hope for you. I'm very thankful that's not the case. We all sin. We all sin in the way that we speak. So check yourself. Look at your life. Watch your tongue. When you see this, repent. Don't make that brother or sister come to you and confront you. You go to them. You confess. You ask for forgiveness. Repent of sin. And as Christ is at work in you, you ought to see sins like this becoming less and less frequent. 
You ought to feel the, the shame and disgust and frustration over this sin. Be broken hearted over the fact that you have cut down a brother or sister for whom Christ died. But here's the warning. If this sin is predominant in your life, like if this is a regular thing for you, an ongoing thing, if this, if this thought process of, of putting yourself above your brothers, above the law, above God is, is habitual for you, this is your natural place, then you have to ask some hard questions, right? Am I even saved? Have I been born again and transformed by grace and forgiven of sin? Salvation is for those who humble themselves before the Lord. And those who consistently operate out of pride need to stare that in the face. Pride and salvation do not coexist, not over the long haul. Salvation comes by humbling ourselves before the Lord and he will continue to humble us. If Christ is in you, he won't let that continue. He won't let that be a sustaining rule of your life. He will slowly, methodically be chipping away at that, softening your heart, transforming the way that you think, and therefore the way that you speak. And if you don't see that process, if you don't see that transformation in your life, and you continue to be ruled by pride, then you're not ruled by Christ. You may still claim, even proudly, to be a Christian, but the truth is the Lord opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Church, we just need to be careful. We need to look at this squarely. Some of us maybe need to go home and go, I've been ruled by this. I need to humble myself before the Lord. Others might say, I've just every now and then, I just see that creep in. I see that take hold just here and there, but that's serious. I can't let that carry on. Let's continue to humble ourselves before the Lord, to walk in submission to him carefully scrutinizing the way we speak, the way we treat those around us, diligently making our tongues submissive to the rule of Christ, the law of love, not putting ourselves above our brothers or above the law, certainly not above the Lord himself, but rather submitting to him, loving one another and so fulfilling the law of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we come before you um, as desperate, needy sinners, every bounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Lord, I pray for any here this morning who are thinking, I don't know if that's me, or I know for sure that's not me. God, would you open their hearts? Lord, that they might see you and your glory and your beauty and the wonder of your grace, that they might come to you in repentance and faith and know um, the joy that is in you, the joy that is full, that is far surpassing anything this world has to offer. Lord, we thank you for your goodness towards us. We thank you that you are a God who delights to forgive who promises that as we draw near to you, you draw near to us. God, may we see that uh, ever more clearly today. Lord, we love you. We praise you for your grace towards us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close our service today. Um,
remembering our brother, John Flood, uh, passed away last week. Those of you who knew John know that he was the living, breathing example of all that we just talked about. This is his life. How God calls sinners to himself and does this great work of transformation for the glory of his name. Um, what, a, what a great hope we have. And, and so we want to honor John the way John would have wanted to be honored, and, and that is by worshiping our God for what he did in John's life. And so um, I'm going to invite Dave Mitchell. Um, Dave is a longtime friend of John's. Could you come on up? And uh, it was Dave that first brought John to, uh, to church here when I first met John. And uh, so Dave is going to um, kind of tell us uh, John's, John's life in summary. So Dave, why don't you come and do that?
Thank you, Dave, um, for sharing that. Um, so clearly remember that day over in the cadet hall um, when Dave brought John in and got to meet him and to see the sheer terror in his eyes and coming to church. And, and, uh, and he was so eager to learn. Um, such a soft heart, such a loving guy, so quick to laugh. Um, we were thrilled. Um, he was teaching Ezra guitar lessons. Um, excited when they changed the regulations last minute over Christmas. We were unable to go to my parents for Christmas. And uh, they said, you could have someone living alone into your home for Christmas. Well, John came to our place for Christmas. We just had a blast. Um, really grew to love that brother. Um, I want to read for you um, John's story just briefly uh, in his own words. And uh, this is John's testimony that he gave um, at his baptism and uh, as part of his membership process here. Um, so I want you to hear it from him. And uh, I, I love that he starts here, as, as you had mentioned, Dave. He says, thank you so much. <laughs> to my redemption brothers and sisters for making me feel so wonderfully welcome. The support and love I received from redemption has been overwhelming. It has shown me the impact and power of faith. This continues to be a fantastic fellowship in the faith. I'm eternally grateful. Before I trusted in Christ, my life was total chaos. Despair, darkness, self-pity, depression due to an active drug addiction, lies, deceit, gratification, etc. I had no hope, no positivity, totally isolated myself. The sad truth is at that point in my life, I saw no way out and had suicidal thoughts. For the majority of my life, I have looked to substance for salvation, understanding, and comfort and as a result, I've been in a prison of my own making and made some terrible choices as a result. As Ephesians 5.18 states, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. I had hit rock bottom in my addiction one morning after a relapse, and in desperation, I clenched my hands together, looked up to the sky, and said, God, if you are real, you need to please show me. And over the course of the week after, events started happening that I could not consider a coincidence. One of the most impactful of which being a meeting up with a former employer, which I had stolen from to feed my addiction and making amends. I could never forgive myself for my past mistakes and lived under utter shame. But through faith in Christ, I learned that with my repentance and Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, I was redeemed. I was forgiven. From the grace of God that he provided for me, I was finally able to forgive myself in many ways, started my life over again. My life has seen a complete turnaround. I am happy, joyous, and free for the first time in 47 years. I am happy and joyous in him. I am free because of him. As Ezekiel 36, 26 states, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I have truly received salvation, and for that I am eternally grateful, grateful for Jesus' sacrifice and God's salvation. I'm here today getting baptized because I would like to make it publicly known that I believe God sacrificed his only son, Jesus Christ, to pay for my sins on the cross, and I pledge myself to him forevermore and to spread the news of his perfect love whenever possible.
Thank you again for this wonderful day and for your fellowship, Redemption Church. We don't know exactly when John died. We don't know exactly why. But we do know exactly where he is right now. I think um, we often do ourselves a disservice as we talk about heaven, these kind of vague, ethereal terms of floating clouds and harps. Um, 2 Corinthians 5, 8 tells us that those who have trusted in Christ to be apart from the body is to be present with the Lord. Today, um, as Jesus promised to the, the thief on the cross so many years ago, um, today you will be with me in paradise. That's where John is now. In a place the New Testament calls paradise, the Old Testament refers to as Abraham's bosom, uh, surrounded by the souls of the saints of the past who have gone before him, but most importantly, in the presence of Jesus himself. No more temptation, no more addiction, no more pain, only joy in the presence of the Lord. To go one step further, we don't just know where he is today, we know where he will be for eternity to come. He will wait there in paradise for that day, that day which no one knows, the day or the hour when Jesus will leave that place and return in victory back to this earth. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 says this, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ, that's John, the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. His soul will not stay in paradise and his body will not stay in that grave. But on that great day of victory, there will be a resurrection. John's body, along with all those who have died in Christ, will be reconstituted out from the dust. Better than ever before, these mortal bodies putting on immortality, no more pain, no more suffering, no more brokenness or decay, perfect eternal bodies. On that day, Satan will be chained and thrown into the pit, and Jesus will reign with his saints on this earth for a thousand years. Think about that. We'll be here on this earth with John, with Jesus, ruling in Jerusalem uh, for a thousand years of peace. After that, the last battle, Satan and his demons will be released. There'll be a great rebellion. With a word, Christ will destroy all his enemies once for all, and then the final judgment. Those who have not submitted to Christ will be cast into hell. But those who have trusted him, who have repented of their sins and come to him in faith, Revelation 21 um, tells this beautiful truth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven had First earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's our eternal destination. Not, not floaty clouds and harps, but a new earth, a tangible reality where we have life in full, perfect relationship with one another and with God himself. Or to put it simply in the words of 1 Thessalonians 4, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words.
Uh, as Dave said, John will be missed, um, but only for a time, only as we await meeting him again in that glorious eternity. Um, this is not the end. This is just barely the beginning. Let's close in song together. Um, would you stand? Let's celebrate um, the glory of our God and the wonder of his salvation.